This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, McMaster and St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton is addressing the issue of the effectiveness of medical cannabis with the creation of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. The focus will be on evidence-based information, uh, information research, and creating a network for uh, uh, to pursue further understanding. To talk more about all of this, James McGillop is with us. James McGillop is with us, co-director of the new Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medical Cannabis Research, also the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and is with us now. James, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hey, Scott. Great to talk to you today. So what is the objective of this center? I've sort of given a, a quick overview. What are you trying to do? What, what's the reasoning behind it? Scott, we're really trying to focus on using empirical research, that is, objective experimental research, to better understand the use of cannabis in medical contexts. There's a real uh, skyrocketing rate of Canadians who are using cannabis medically, but the evidence for what it might be useful for is pretty weak, and we feel like McMaster, the home of evidence-based medicine, can really contribute to that dialogue. Doesn't it seem kind of odd that we're having this discussion now? Shouldn't it have been had before we started this uh, experiment? I, I think you're absolutely right. This, it would be ideal if this had happened five years ago or ten years ago. I think that um, now, better late than never, and the reality is we think with legalization just around the corner, there's going to be even more interest in cannabis use in general and possibly using cannabis for pain or for other medical conditions. And so we think the sooner we have good data that can speak to whether or not this is a good medicine, the better. Uh, certainly better late than never, and I don't mean to dwell on this, but why would it have taken so long? Uh, is modern medicine slow to react to this and why? Well, cannabis has always been a somewhat unusual drug insofar as uh, it has not always attracted as much attention as some of the more um, notable illicit drugs like opioids, for example, in the context of the current opioid crisis. And to be sure, that's a very significant issue, but it actually pertains to a relatively small number of people in total. Cannabis, on the other hand, isn't always perceived as being as significant an issue, but is actually used by many more Canadians than opioids. So there's been, in general, a, a bit of a gap in the field as far as uh, focusing on cannabis research. So uh, some have said this is because there's uh, no money to be made in patenting, uh, patenting uh, 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 this sort of plant as opposed to, um, you know, like a, a big pharma drug. Is there, any, is there any truth to that at all? There's just no, there's no money in that respect? I don't think so. You know, what's interesting about cannabis is that it actually is not a single drug. It is a wealth of different drugs. There are over 500 different cannabinoids or um, compounds within cannabis. So it may very well be that there are commercially viable compounds that could be ultimately used more like traditional medicines, or it may be actually that they have to be delivered in combination, um, as in the plant form. So I, I don't think that it's as much an issue as far as commercialization goes, but I think that it has sort of occupied an unusual place in the field, and that's why it's been overlooked to an extent. How do you explain how we got this far without this sort of research being done? Well, I think that the, the state of cannabis use, both recreational and medicinal in Canada, in Canada is really a function of, um, to a certain extent, uh, advocacy and uh, well-intentioned advocacy. Um, and... Uh, 
natural societal trends also. And I think unlike uh, traditional medicines that have to be vetted in randomized controlled trials and go really run the gauntlet of um, the approval processes by Health Canada, um, cannabis came to be legal for medical purposes via a very different route. And that different route means that there were, uh, in many ways, not the kinds of rigorous objective examinations of its applications to different medical problems. So it, it really has taken a very different path, in part because of advocacy, in part because of the uh, legal system. And that's why we, we have a, um, you know, a substance that's being used for medical purposes by, by quite a lot of Canadians, many more uh, month by month. Uh, and we don't really have the same kind of evidence in terms of safety and uh, effectiveness as we do for other Health Canada approved medications. Uh, obviously, this has been around for an awfully long time. Uh, is the stigma, is that changing? I mean, is it all about stigma here? We think that the stigma is changing to, to a certain extent. And, and I think you can see that perhaps in the rates of uh, individuals who are seeking authorizations for medical cannabis. So. Since uh, October 2015, or really December 2015, um, when there were about 40,000 Canadians who were authorized for medical cannabis, that number has shot up to about 140,000, probably closer to 150,000 at this point. And we think that that surge may in part be because people perceived that with the advent of uh, legal cannabis for recreational use, it, it may be viable for medical use also, and that there is kind of a, a changing perception uh, in terms of risks around cannabis. And the reality is we believe that it may have important medical properties, but like lots of drugs, like opioids, like benzodiazepines or, or other drugs that um, are commonly used, it also is not uh, without its risks. And so our critical focus is both looking through clear eyes at ways it can be helpful, but also being aware of ways that it can be risky. Uh, do you think this is uh, the changing stigma is a reaction to the opioid crisis, which many blame Big Pharma for, especially after marketing this drug to doctors as a clean drug and the exact opposite of what actually happened here? Um, and again, that's through, you know, Big Pharma and, and, our, and our health system. Do you think people are reacting to that? I think that's part of it. I think there's tremendous appetite now for other strategies in pain management. People are now well aware of the significant risks that can come with opioids, and whether it be by cannabis or by other complementary medicine strategies, I think there's a, a real uh, desire for alternatives in uh, both on the part of physicians and other clinicians, but also on the part of patients. And I think that's changing the perspective around cannabis what we want to be careful of, though, is that the pendulum doesn't swing too far it back uh, away from risk um, so that we wind up in 10 years from now saying we have an opi- a, a cannabis-related crisis or an array of different right. negative consequences that we weren't expecting. So we're really, our, our goal is to be an honest broker in terms of what cannabis may be useful for and what it may not be useful for and what the benefits are and what the risks are. You talk about an honest broker. That's an interesting phrase. Uh, are, are you finding that, ta- that, that more so patients are not trusting Big Pharma because of the opioid crisis that was pretty much created by them? Well, I think that certainly there has been a, an evolving perspective uh, among patients that 
uh, they have to be cautious about what they're being told by their uh, physicians and uh, other health providers. The, the reality is, unfortunately, we are in a time where recommendations around health are often shifting. One thing is healthy to eat one day, and then it's unhealthy the next day. One medication is relatively safe one day, and then uh, known to be quite unsafe another day. So I think that um, people are more wary and more skeptical, and there's a, a much greater need in general for unbiased and uh, evidence-based information for uh, physicians, for patients, um, and for society overall. Is this about collecting data, James, that's already there, or actually doing the research and, 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 and collecting, uh, creating your own data? We're actually doing both. So part of our strategy is to help make sense of the, the work that's already out there being published. So we're curating the literature to create evidence briefs and um, basically documents that can be useful immediately in terms of what is known, what the state of the science is, but the center is also supporting new research projects from uh, preclinical studies using rodent models of pain, for example, up through studies looking at uh, tax policy and price um, elasticity to collect new data that can really speak to these most important questions. How much of the data out there right now is credible, or how much is there? Well, those are two very different questions. So I think that uh, there are... There's a, there's a reasonably large literature, but a lot of the quality of the work is uh, lower than we would hope. And so many of the trials that exist, for example, don't have really strong placebo conditions or uh, uh, credible designs that would allow us to make a strong inference that, that cannabis is useful. So it's not always a matter that there isn't enough research. It's that the rigor is not always as high as it needs to be. And um, it's hard to identify the signal amid all the noise. So that's part of our role, to, to try to make sense of what is uh, the best evidence and what should guide uh, physician uh, recommendations. Other schools involved in this, other universities, other organizations, uh, where are you on, in the mix on this? Well, we see this uh, starting as a, a partnership between St. Joe's and Mac, obviously, but we are very interested in developing a uh, network and collaborating with other institutions. So we've been discussing collaborations with other institutions uh, in Canada, at Toronto and uh, McGill in Montreal, but we're also talking to potential collaborators in the U.S. And we really see this as an opportunity for Mac to be a hub around which a lot of the best work in the area can be conducted. Uh, how do you make sure that you're all working and, and, and rowing in the same direction as opposed to uh, retracing others' paths? Or is it that coordinated? That's a great question. Well, that's one of the reasons why we thought it was important to have uh, a research center. And the role that myself and Jason Busta, the other co-director, have is really making sure that all the 30 faculty members back who are affiliated with the center are not necessarily on the same page in, in to the extent that they have the same perspective, but that we all sort of have a sense for the different lines of inquiry that are being pursued. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, um, all of our faculty are uh, persuaded not by what they believe or by rumor. They're, they're driven by their data. So some people are uh, interested in um, more clinical questions. Some people are interested in more risk-related questions. And we're not, we're not looking for consensus necessarily. We're interested in people who are um, 
uh, open-minded and objective and focused on doing the, the highest quality work. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, this whole industry is evolving pretty quickly now. Uh, what about timeline? When will we start to see results, or is this something that's still five years away? Oh, we're going to see results long before that. We, we have already begun a number of projects locally. Our website is live, and we've already uh, provided a lot of the uh, evidence briefs and the research summaries that I alluded to before. We're actually convening a state of the science conference in February here in Hamilton and bringing scientists from across Canada uh, and internationally also to really um, uh, serve as a catalyst locally. And I think that within the next few months, we're going to start seeing results from our first studies. And, and our hope is to only gain more momentum from there. So this is very much a um, uh, an undertaking that is intended to be timely and, and intended to do work that will speak to some of the big questions that will come up over the course of legalization. Uh, as we move towards legalization next year, do we know enough? Are we, are, are we testing this out as we're waiting in, or are we ready for this? As a researcher, I almost always tend to think we don't know enough. Um, but the reality is uh, I'm not sure we would ever be able to, to fully uh do enough research to, to 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 move forward and i think that um what we what we have to recognize we're doing is basically a national natural experiment and uh the the what we need to do is treat it that way and recognize that this is a major shift in policy and legislation uh and we need to study the outcomes we need to look at whether or not there are effects of uh, legalization, for example, on motor vehicle accidents or emergency department admissions. And equally, are there positive signals like reductions in the number of opioid scripts or uh, other uh, medical, uh, pain management scripts that are being filled? And I think that we really have to um, uh, take a, uh, a hard look at what the effects are immediately after legalization and also six months, a year, and, and even longer into the future. Uh, with the opioid crisis sort of running parallel here, how can we use one to learn for the other? Well, I think the opioid crisis is a very troubling uh, parable in what can happen if uh, risky, dangerous, habit-forming, um, highly addictive uh, medicines are uh, uh, marketed too aggressively uh, and are uh, underestimated in terms of their risk. And I think that what we have to recognize is that there are rarely any panaceas in medicine. Um, there will be benefits and there will be risks that come with cannabis legalization and uh, cannabis uh, as a uh, medical product. And we shouldn't be overinvested in uh, one perspective or the other and seek balance in, in understanding positive impacts and also possible risks. Uh, we're almost out of time. Can we compare the two, or is that just apples to oranges? It, they're definitely in the fruit basket, but they are so, so different that I think that I would hesitate to make too close a, uh, a comparison. I think that what we need to do in... The, the context of medical cannabis is we need to learn from the opioid crisis and, and really be careful and cautious about uh, uh, 
undervaluing and under-recognizing the risks involved. James McKillop has been with us, co-director of the new Michael G. DeRoot Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, also the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. James, thank you so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, Kathleen Wynn in the hammer today, making an announcement in regards to a new agency being created that will start home care delivery in the spring for some clients in three regions. Crickets. Boy, you'd you'd think there'd be more fanfare in regard to something like this, but is it all as it seems? Uh, Maybe not so, says Steve Clark, Deputy Leader, Ontario PCs, is on the line with us now. Hello, Steve. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. Hey, Scott, thanks for uh, having me on the show again. I really appreciate it. So what are the Liberals doing here that is raising red flags in your camp? Well, you you hit the nail on the head. So they've announced this new agency that's going to provide home care, did it in an extremely quiet manner. As you uh, mentioned, the Premier uh, is in Hamilton, had a media veil, uh, answered every question except on this topic where she bailed out, gave the mic to Eric Hoskins. And the reason they're not making a big deal about this is is because of who is going to uh, look after this agency. The same month that uh, a liberal-backed union, the Service Employees uh, International Union, SEIU, bought attack ads against Patrick Brown, this was the reward that Kathleen Wynne gave them by allowing them to run this home care agency with employees who are going to be, belong to SEIU. So, you know, life is good for Kathleen Wynne's insider friends. And that's basically why they're not making any fanfare. It's, uh, it's just uh, an I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. Why isn't this a good idea? You know, many would say that, you know, some sort of a provincial health care plan is a good idea. Why is this not a good idea? Well, there's already a, a number of groups that are, uh, are lining up against this. You know, presently, uh, this type of work is being done, obviously, by PSWs. They're delivering home care. There's a mix of, of for-profit companies and not-for-profit companies. But yet you have to go back and look at this government and their record in setting up agencies, uh, you know, like, like eHealth. Uh, like the orange air ambulance uh, scandal that we've had, we have a situation where you know they rolled one level of bureaucracy, the CCACs, into the lens. Now they're creating this new level of bureaucracy, and there's a lot of people that that have talked about uh, you know how it could be done better. You know, every stakeholder group is condemning it, saying it's going to hurt patient care, but she's not doing it for the care. Kathleen Wynne is doing this to give her friends uh, a bit of a deal, and and in return. They're taking out ads against uh, my leader, Patrick Brown. It's, uh, it's awful. So uh, you, you're claiming this is all about uh, giving support for, uh, to a union that is uh, supporting the Liberal Party. Yeah, it's, it, again, it's, 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 it's when you're an insider friend, that's how you get rewarded with Kathleen Wynne. You, you, you know, when I read the CBC story first, I agree with them. You know, you would expect that the Wynne Liberals... Uh, they use the words shouting from the rooftops when you make a change like this to get the public sector more involved in in our healthcare system. But the move was quiet, uh, almost silent. Uh, many groups are questioning the, the the motive of doing it. And then when you start to draw the line between you know the SEIU and uh, the, this group that's been taking out ads against uh, against my leader. It's, again, it, it just shows you the depths that Kathleen Wynne is willing to go to 
to try to pull out a win in the election. It's uh, it's nothing about patient care. It's all about payback. Uh, why not consultation? Why not talk to these other groups before putting something this large together? It sort of reminds me of the electricity system. Uh, a, a, a great plan in their minds, but not tested and true, and, and not tested and true, and, and certainly no due diligence by talking to other people involved. Well, exactly. You've got uh, you've got people like uh, Michael Decker, the, the head of uh, Patients Canada. He's a former deputy minister of health. Again, you, you, you would think you want to have more choice and more flexibility in an existing system, not, you know, heavy in bureaucracy. You look at some of the groups that are out there, you know, uh, helping trying to, to get PSWs organized and, and to try to get, uh, you know, a, a good level of care. You know, this was a surprise to, to many individuals that you're going to create yet another agency. And, and the fact that the government has done it so quietly, you know, I guess they, they banked that you wouldn't have had the CBC breaking this story yesterday. I guess they figure that, uh, that they, they didn't expect people like, uh, like me to come out and say, uh, this is what it is. All it is is, is a payback um, for, for a union, and, and that's why they created the agency. It's got nothing to do with care, and that's why they're not applauding. That's why there's not a lineup of people trying to say that this is a good thing. And uh, I'm just glad that it's out in the public, and uh, we can talk about it more for what it is. Uh, Natalie Mayra, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, says a public home care system would be a great leap forward and a huge benefit to Ontarians. It's without question in the public interest. Yeah, well, there's many others that are saying the opposite. You know, you, you talk to some people that, that work with the PSWs, you look at the, the competing union, for example, uh, OPSU, and, and some of the comments that, uh, that Smokey Thomas has made. Uh, you, you look at the, the, the minister. You know, I was speaking to our critic, uh, Jeff Urich, uh, yesterday. Uh, MPP Yurik uh, talked about you know questioning the minister at estimates, and he had no answer. So I think, I think this was all done... Uh, without any any thought, uh, you mentioned the consultation piece. I think there's uh, that's been lacking. Uh, again, it's all about you take out ads against the Tories. I'll look after you by creating an agency that's going to further your organization. Is that's this all it is. Uh, would they say this is about a public system versus a private system? This is putting it all under one umbrella instead of leaving it as a piecemeal sort of uh, setup. Yeah, but I think but I think there are ways we can strengthen our public system. You know, we we've had lots of uh, lots of organizations that have talked about working together, uh, making more choice in the system. Um, you know, strengthening uh, the public aspect. Uh, again, creating a new bureaucracy uh, that that would to me would take money away from frontline care, away from helping uh, uh, people get uh, the care that they need on a timely basis. I just think creating a new agency that doesn't have a business plan, that doesn't uh, have some, uh, some clear goals that uh, the government can talk about. It's just very questionable. It's a sketchy plan. Um, they may say that uh, they are selling it well. They are doing their job. Uh, why would they have something in, you know, that, that's going to benefit patients and then not want to uh, you know, talk about it? Well, why, why would they not want to show it from the rooftops? Why would they not want to, you know, there, we're on a break week right now. Why would they not want to make sure that uh, they had announcements in, uh, in every uh, Lynn jurisdiction talking about how wonderful this announcement is? Because they don't want people to know the truth. They don't want people to know why, why they're doing it. So do you feel that they don't think even the benefits are great enough that are worth publicizing, even though it is a vote-getter for them? 
they, they I don't think they've done their due diligence. I, I think they've just sat back and said, here's an organization that we're going to, uh, we're going to give a, a government benefit, millions and millions of dollars, to set up an agency. And what they've done is they've started with some ads uh, attacking the opposition. Who knows what, uh, what, what else is part of the deal? I think they need to come clean. Uh, your thoughts on what Smokey Thomas has uh, weighed in on from Opsu. He's obviously been very vocal about staying neutral and not necessarily supporting any uh, political party. Uh, his thoughts on this are similar to yours, are they not? Yeah, I, th- I think the I think he he's concerned. If I if I read his his comments uh, in in the CBC, you know he's he's worried that this is uh, this is an inside relationship, and you know from his perspective as a union leader, it does erode the uh, the right of his members to choose which union they want to be a member of. It, it clearly uh, puts all the cards in uh, in the SEIU's hands, and uh, you know they've already done uh, the the uh, premier's bidding. By uh, start to wade in politically against uh, against us as the opposition, so you know it's very concerning that uh, that the Wynn government will do uh, will do anything, including set up agencies to their friends uh, to get what they want. Uh, Smokey Thomas, president of Mopsu, says, "quote This whole affair smacks of shady inside relationships and dangerously erode union democracy and the rights of workers." Uh, to choose. How do you think this is going to play out in Ontario? Uh, is this something that's going to get the public's attention? Well, I hope so. I hope so, Scott. I think, I think we, we have to, we, we can't just let uh, the liberal insiders have their way in trying to change public opinion about the election. I think there's an incredible appetite for change. Uh, I know my leader Patrick Brown has toured across the province, and people are tired of these uh, these insiders winning. And you know, clearly, uh, this is another example of uh, the government spending a significant amount of money as uh, as a payback. Uh, it, it appears, uh, as some of the people have said, this is an insider deal. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the interview, you know, it's a, it's like an I, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Uh, and that's not the way that we should have uh, our premier governing the province. It's uh, it's sickening. Uh, how should you do this if not putting it under one umbrella the way the premier is suggesting? Well, again, I, I think you need to have uh, openness and transparency, and I think I think there are a number of stakeholders. Uh, why would you, know, you lose? Right? Why would you lose that under the premier's plan? Well, listen, I have no faith in this government to operate a yet another agency that appears to have no business plan. We have got a number of existing scandals in this province because the government put politics ahead of good public policy. You know, e-health, uh, orange, you know, you've got this whole uh, issue with uh, with the way the LINs have been operated. This, uh, you know, we, d- we dismantle one bureaucracy in the CCAC. Now we create another one for home care in the province. Like, we need to put the money into frontline care. We need to ensure that those frontline workers have the resources to do their jobs so that our uh, parents who want home care, our loved ones who want home care, get that care when they need it. What they don't need is they don't need some backroom deal between the premier and and an organization to funnel money to try to change the election. That's so basically, what happens and and correct me if I'm wrong here that if if this if this goes through, and uh, you, you know there it it all is under uh, one umbrella, the personal support services 
uh, Ontario. Does that mean this other union has complete control over everyone that's uh, PSWs that are hired there? Yeah, that's that's basically what's going to happen. The biggest beneficiary of this because we don't really come, we're not really coming out and saying that that's what the issue yeah. is. Is that going to be? There's going to be one person, one group, SEIU Healthcare, that are going to that are going to benefit, and they've already shown where their allegiance lies. They've already started to take out ads against uh, my party and my leader, and this is part of this deal. When when we talk about shady deals, this is this is one that people need to know about. When you, someone like a Smokey Thomas comes out and speaks out against this, what does it say? Well, I think, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, the one good thing about the fact that it, it broke this week is that there are uh, stakeholders uh, in the system that now can speak freely um, that, that this is not the way to go. And, and I think in the weeks to come, you're going to have more stakeholders come, come forward. You're going to have more people come forward that, that, that say that this is a misdirected plan one that's only politically motivated by Premier Kathleen Wynne. How will Patrick Brown position this in the ledge? Well, I think, you know, again, I think we, we have to show uh, as an opposition, as part of our Westminster system, that, uh, that we hold the government to account. And I think the government needs to, uh, to, to talk about that relationship, to talk about, uh, you know, the, the people that are involved. You've got, uh, you know, the head of government relations for the SEIU is a former president of the Liberal Party. He's a former employee of Kathleen Wynne. You know, I, you know, I think she, I think we need to hear from the premier. She can't just uh, drop the mic to uh, Eric Hoskins. This is an organization that uh, that she needs to address, and uh, you know, that's what we're going to be saying in the legislature. We're going to be holding them to account. Uh, when you think of the relationship between doctors and nurses and uh, the provincial government, the stories about uh, hallway healing that you hear, uh, even hospitals trying and healthcare systems trying to pay their electricity bills, uh, how could she not do more due diligence with this, knowing that opposition and others are looking very closely at it? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think I think you you have to you have to have that due diligence when you set up something you know she has and her government has over the last summer over the summer months uh, had many many panels many many discussions um you know this this was this was a a line item on a press release um it's not going to fool anybody um you know you know when the registry was first announced um, the, the close relationship with SEIU was talked about by the Liberal Party. It went largely went unnoticed. You know, now that we see that that, that these uh, working Ontario women ads are, are are running against Patrick, the fact that uh, that there's a tie-in with SEIU and there's a tie directly in with Kathleen Wynne's office, we've got to get back to a system where we focus on healthcare, not political paybacks. And I think that's that's the focus that we'll see in the legislature next week uh, after Remembrance Day. I think this is not going to go away. It's going to continue to uh, to haunt the government. And I think people, uh, by uh, by people like us talking about it, uh, hopefully the, the public will realize that uh, this premier will stop at nothing to get what she wants. Steve Clark has been with us, Deputy Leader, Ontario PC. Steve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, my friend. Kathleen Wynne uh, in the hammer today making an announcement in regards to uh, a new agency being created that will start home care delivery in the spring. 
for cl- some clients in three regions. Uh, what isn't passing the smell test here is that uh, this is basically giving uh, all these PSW uh, jobs to a union uh, in order for uh, support in the next election. Uh, and of course, uh, some union leaders uh, upset about that, while others, of course, uh, reaping the war- uh, reaping the reward, as they say. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. All right, a new campaign by the Canadian Down Syndrome Society entitled Anything But Sorry is being utilized to educate the public on how to respond to the birth of a baby with this condition. To talk more about all of this, the National Executive Director of Canadian Down Syndrome Society, Kurt Crowther, is with us now. Kurt, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, We appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Tell everybody about this campaign and the video, and unfortunately there's just too many uh, bombs in there for us to play it unedited, unedited, but tell us exactly the gist of this, of this uh, campaign. Yeah, so we just noticed as a, as a national office that, that many parents um, of children with Down syndrome really were getting back to us and saying that um, you know, the responses they were getting after they delivered the pregnancy news that they had a son or daughter with Down syndrome were less than positive, and, and the first thing people were always saying was sorry, from the doctor that would come in to give the determination that the child had Down syndrome society to the nurses, to friends or family. And there was a real awkward silence, and I think um, one of the things we really wanted to do, and the simple truth is that all announcements of a new life should be celebrated, and we really wanted to show people, um, the public and, and, and parents, that really you can say anything to a new parent, but the last thing you really want to say is sorry, especially during that time. Um, so we developed a campaign of five videos, um, the first video being the one that you could not necessarily air because it's got some colorful language, of individuals with Down syndrome, so these are all adults with Down syndrome, um, telling us what you, what you can't say. Um, so they use a little bit of colorful language. You can say um, a variety of different things, but really what we don't want you to say is sorry when you first meet that new baby, the first family. Um, and that, that's so in other words, you know, even dropping S-bombs or F-bombs, just like every other young adult or, or kid or teenager or, or so does, that's one thing, but, but sorry is a bad word. Absolutely. Yep, the family's usually going through a little, um, they could be going through a little grieving stage at that point to the shock, and that's what we wanted to do with this. Um, we knew the campaign would be a little bit of a shock, certainly the first video out of the, out of the five videos we produced, but that was our intention. We really wanted to make a bold statement that proves the worst possible thing you can say to a parent of a child with Down syndrome um, isn't anything vulgar or anything offensive language. By far, the most inappropriate thing you can say to a parent is sorry. Uh, why? Why do you? Why are they getting that reaction? I mean, I'm sure the people aren't trying to make them feel bad. I don't. Nope. I, don't I don't think that's their intention to 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 be harmful. Why is that the reaction? I think it's 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 hard. A lot of of um, you know people across Canada don't necessarily understand developmental disability, um, haven't haven't been witness to it. Um, of course, that's that's changing because kids are now included in school and um, are working competitive jobs. But I think it's just that that second they really don't know what to say. And even parents that have older children, um, um, they're still hearing the word sorry um, when they're you know. Um, going to the soccer game and parents are still saying, oh, I'm sorry your son has, has Down syndrome. We got a call about eight days ago from, from a mother who called wanting just some information about Down syndrome. And, you know, the first thing we say as an office, we congratulate their, their parent. And she started crying on the phone because no one in that eight days had ever said congratulations to her. So, And that, hmm. that's, that's pretty disappointing. 
Um, is this something, should we approach this uh, uh, the same with Down syndrome as any other sort of disability? I mean, you could, you could say the same for kids who are blind or deaf, could you not? Absolutely, that's, and that's a great point, Scott, that um, it should be used across the board for, for any child. Um, you know, born prematurely, born whatever, I think, you know, parents are, are in that stage, especially when their child is first born, um, where they, they need that support. And I understand that some people will want to say sorry, but um, it, it, it just sets the parents up for kind of, um, you know, they start thinking about what's happening later in life. And really, at that point, we should just be celebrating that, hey, you know, you just had a, a little boy or a little girl, and, and let's celebrate that. Is it naive to, 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 to think that life is going to be as easy as it would be with a child without this condition? Is it, again, um, I'm not sure what direction to come at this, uh, yeah. simply because I honestly do believe that some may feel sorry. Uh, right. How much of this comes down to the issue of, you know, obviously the parent deciding what to do when finding out that their child has this condition? I mean, th- this must have a lot to do with that issue as well. Yeah, and there, um, there are certainly some parents when that child is born, they will want to know everything about Down syndrome, you know, in the first 24 hours. And some parents may not open up a resource or, or do a little bit of searching for, um, you know, six months, year after the, ch- the child is born. But I think, um, you know, again, we're, we're kind of coming back to um, the celebratory piece and that having a child with Down syndrome is not, is not going to be different than raising a typical child. And I can, I can tell from my own experience um, of having a, a foster son um, with Down syndrome who are guardian, he, his life was probably easier than my typical kids. Um, although, you know, um, he did he did struggle a little bit in school, but he was always included in school. Um, you know, we did what we, we could for him. And he's 32 now, and he lives with a, with a roommate. You know, he has a job. He has a great life. Um, and I think that there's nothing to be sorry for. And if you ask a person with Down syndrome, um, you know, how's your life? Nine times out of ten, they're going to tell you they've got a pretty good life. And they're doing, they're doing everything that the regular population does. And again, as parents, I think it's just getting parents to understand that this is not going to change your life dramatically. It will be a little different, but it will be such a, a great place in your heart. And if we talk to parents that have children with Down syndrome now or have adults with Down syndrome, they will tell you it's been a blessing. Um, they will, it's rare that we hear anything, but it's been a blessing to have a child with, with Down syndrome. It's made their family better. It's made their, um, their community better. By, by being able to include their child in, in so many different things. So, Kirk, is this, ab- is this about misconceptions of, uh, or mis- the misconception of what it's like to, to have a child with Down syndrome or to live with Down syndrome? Why, where's the conflict here? Why, yeah. why, why, do one, why do some view it one way and some the other? I think it's just that general perception and, it, and it's awareness. It's awareness from the community. I mean, if, if a parent... Um, if it's, if it's pre-diagnosed, often parent can do some research and can be prepared for, um, for a, a baby, just like a, a parent would if they wanted to know if it was a girl or a boy. What color do you paint the room, pink or blue? Um, if parents know in advance they're having a child with Down syndrome, they can do a little bit of planning. They can see what they can expect uh, when their child is, is born. Um, but what we're really trying to do is educate the public and to say, you know what, having a child with Down syndrome now is no different than any other child. Raising a child with Down syndrome 
um, can be a little different, but typically it's no different than a typical child. And I think there's such there is a misconception there that having a child with Down syndrome will be tough on your own family. Will be um, tough. You'll you'll have more medical appointments. You'll have you'll have so much more to do in your life. And that that is not the case at all. That's really a, a misconception of having any type of disability. I think even um, you know whether it's Down syndrome or not. Um. Is this that we don't know enough about Down syndrome or we just seem to label people with conditions, uh, period? Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I had a parent of a child who had uh, who, who had autism and, you know, was telling us some of the stories and the day-to-day stories. And it certainly is different. It, it's, 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 it's extremely stressful. Um, and, and, you know, uh, over and above... I'm not saying it hasn't brought anything to their family, but it certainly isn't the same, and, and it's certainly a lot more time-consuming from right. what I understood. So what is the biggest misconception about somebody with Down syndrome? You know, I guess um, that, that the baby will be different than, than typical baby, that, that family life will be more challenging. Um, and in some cases, in my, um, in my expectation of having that foster son, it's been less challenging for us have him than, um, you know, than having to worry about um, my 17-year-old daughter that, you know, might get into a car with somebody that's been drinking or something. So there are, there are a lot of different aspects that, that make it easier, um, you know. Because it is different. Because, because it, well, it is, it is different, but um, it, it just kind of brings a family together. And there's been a lot of studies done saying, has this made your family better? And, I mean, uh, you would expect people to say it has. Um, but it's been o- the response has been overwhelming that it's made families better, more well-rounded, um, and and there are so many opportunities now for people with Down syndrome, you know, including post-secondary school. Most most colleges and universities in Canada now have post-secondary programs for people with developmental disabilities. Um, you know, living on your own, they're participating members of society, they're working, they're paying taxes, and that's what I tell my guys. Like, I'm glad you're out there paying taxes because you know what, you need to start contributing now, uh, and, and he gets that. Um, you know, we have, we have great local groups to provide support on the ground from across Canada, one being in Hamilton, which is, which is a, a fantastic group of parents, fantastic leadership, and actually we'll be in Hamilton next year. We have a national conference that goes um, across Canada uh, once every year, and next year our national conference is right in Hamilton. How much do we know about Down syndrome? How much do we know about cause? How, do we, how much do we know about, you know, how severe the condition is right. and, and, and what level it puts them at? Again, excuse my lack of ignorance or my oh, ignorance no. on the terms and such, but, but, but describe it. Yeah. So, I mean, we still don't know a lot about exactly why Down syndrome is happening. We know it's a naturally occurring chromosomal, chromosomal arrangement. That happens across. It's just not in Canada and North America. It's across the world. People are being born with Down syndrome. We know there is a higher incidence now as parents get a little older, right. um, 35 or 40, that um, you do have a greater chance of having a child with Down syndrome. But we found in the last little while, too, dad is a factor in that now, too. So if dad is a little older, um, that can have a factor in it, too. The interesting thing is most children born with Down syndrome are born to parents under 30 years of age, hmm. and that's just the demographic. That's just most, you know, children are born yeah. Yeah. below 30. So most parents are, are kind of, um, you know, it can be your first child, it can be your third or fourth child, but typically that, um, 
the parents are under 30 years of age. Hmm. Uh, and what does it do to the individual? What are w- Describe the condition. What are they lacking, for lack of a better word? So I guess it's the developmental milestones. Um, so often it takes, and not all the time, but often it might take someone, a child with Down syndrome, a little longer to, um, to walk. Certainly speech-language pathology is very, very important for young children with Down syndrome um, to help them speak. But often those developmental milestones are a little behind. And, and, and I say that in saying that not every case. I know some individuals that are in grade 6 that are reading at a grade 6 level. Um, but some of those developmental things are a little, mm-hmm. um, are a little behind. And I think that's changing, too. Um, you know, my 35 years um, working with people with disabilities, it really um, has changed a lot because we know the power of early intervention with those young kids, getting them started early. Mm. Um, and we know the benefits of including those kids in regular classrooms, and that and that not pushes a child, but that gives the child the opportunity to learn um, with with their peers, and and to be kind of part of that whole school process. And I think that's so beneficial for kids to learning to be excited to go to school. Um, the days of having having that special education class in in the hallway down the hall away from the other kids, th- those days are gone now. Um, um, what about what's the biggest challenge for parents here? I think sometimes um, getting support, you know, getting that support, having another parent to talk to, especially if you're in a smaller community. We're lucky in Canada to have great some great large groups um, in larger cities, um, but sometimes you know even um, on the medical side, those smaller cities don't offer um, any kind of specialized clinics. For, for speech language, for physiotherapy, for occupational therapy. Um, so that's a challenge. We, I mean, we'd like to be able to provide services, you know, in, in every small town from, you know, from Inuvik to Toronto. Um, but, but we're kind of unable to, and, and, and that, that's kind of a shame because especially kids in those smaller communities or even in First Nations communities, which we're just trying, um, doing some work with now, have really had no exposure to, um, you know, the best methods to teach an individual with Down syndrome, the best medical care for, for an individual with Down syndrome. So what that, a, that's a big challenge. What about after the parents are gone? How, how do, how, who takes care of them uh, moving forward? How, what about their ability to function as adults and be self-sufficient? Yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of them are self-sufficient, but a lot of them just need uh, we'll just need small support, some of those, um, some of those individuals. W- when parents are gone, um, you know, uh, and again, it, it's getting so much better because parents used to, li- or people used to live with their parents until, you know, they were 65 or so. Um, but as the, as the um, life expectancy for Down syndrome goes up to around 59 now, um, of course, people with Down syndrome are, out- are outliving their parents. So and what we're trying to get families to do is plan for the future, plan where your son or daughter will will go um, because often that planning never used to happen in the past but now families are understanding the importance of getting planned um, the disability savings plan getting all that in order and I think fa- new families in particular are all on top of that and they really understand because um, you know and, and and this is my own own feeling your 32 year old or 35 year old son shouldn't really be living with mom and dad at that point they should even if that is roommate to live with. Hmm. Um, and, and it gives parents an opportunity too, not to think that, or to give them the opportunity too, to, to have a retirement because um, they put such a huge commitment into raising their, their own children. 
um, that, that gives them an opportunity to kind of plan for the future. And really that's, we're really focusing now on trying to get parents to think a little bit outside the box. Um, again, and they're doing a great job now because they realize that um, the future is pretty bright for people with Down syndrome now. And, and especially if, if there's some planning involved um, prior to, you know, mom and dad either getting sick or just kind of retiring or wanting to travel. Um, so, so, so much has been done. And even the gentleman that works in our office, we have, we have two people um, with Down syndrome that work in our office. He lives independently and he has an independent roommate and he is, he is fully independent. Like he loves to travel. He loves sports. He, he's just a well-rounded guy and he's such, he's no different than anyone else in this office. No different at all. How much, how much advance notice can parents get on this uh, condition? When, when, are, when can they find out? Because you said earliest, earlier diagnosis is better. When, when do you know? So you, you can know um, within about two months of the pregnancy. Um, two, two months. So um, the prenatal, um, parents can find out there's prenatal testing that can occur for parents to uh, know ahead of time. Um, and then when certainly if they have a child in the hospital now, most, most hospitals have um, a package from us, a package from the local group, and we'll try to reach out and match and match kind of parent to parent. But um, yeah, within, within about eight weeks, 12 weeks, um, an individual can know if it's not 100% definitive, um, these tests, they never are. Um, but if, if parents choose to be tested, if, if moms choose to be tested, they can, they can go through that process and find out. And, and you know, we, we anticipate the termination rate for um, kids with Down syndrome probably to about 80 to 90% in Canada, mm. um, which, it, which is still very high once, once families know. Um, but again, we, um, it is, it is a parent's decision and it's a law in Canada that women have that choice. Um, w- the big thing we push for is just fair and balanced information. Mm. And, we, and we hear some, some negative stories from parents that, you know, have gone in to see their doctor and the doctor says, you know, there is a, there is a probably a pretty good chance you're going to have a, a lovely child with Down syndrome. And if, but if you want, we can, you know, we can do something about that, um, without giving any information at all. Mm. Um, and it's too bad because we want that balanced information. We want fair information given to, to the parent. Um, Kirk Crowther has been with us, National Executive Director, Canadian Down Syndrome Society. Kirk, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yes, thank you. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.